0: Welcome to Hillsborough Village. My name's Joshua. Uh, I'm the pastor here at this location of Ethos. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19, we're gonna be reading uh, verses 41 through 44 this morning. If you're using one of our blue Bibles, that's on page 512. Um, If you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got communion tables in all four corners of the room and, and stationed on those are some Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at all, grab one of those Bibles and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Luke 19, 41 through 44. What a beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for sunshine. Clouds are getting on my last nerve. It's beautiful out here. Luke 19, true. Um, I was talking to someone who I love very much who talked about how much they love the overcast weather. It's like, didn't move. Get out of here. <laughs> Qu- quit bringing that badness on him. <laughs> who said that? There's more of you? All right. All right. Luke 19, 41 through 44. This is Jesus, this is a story about Jesus. Says, and when he drew near, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Feeling good? Let me pray over us. God, um, thank you for the word you have. Holy Spirit, thank you for being present and for guiding our hearts. God, thank you that our conscience bears witness to your truth, to your reality. Will you give us ears to hear your spirit moving in us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to tell a story. Uh, 11 years ago, I was working at a, uh, a lock-in at a church event. I was a camp counselor for this thing. And that hurts my feelings that 11 years ago, I was old enough to be a counselor. <laughs> I'm, I'm now aware that I'm getting older. Um, 11 years ago, I wish I was like in third grade or something, but no. So I was a counselor at this thing, and it was on a Saturday afternoon. And typically on Saturdays, you could find me playing and watching football. Um, but this day, I couldn't watch football. So instead, I just heard about this football game. And and there's a good chance that if you follow sports even lightly, you've heard about it too. But there was this game where this team called the Michigan Wolverines, all right, the University of Michigan, was playing another team called Appalachian State, all right? And uh, this was was one of those games where if you don't watch sports, you should know this. Sometimes big and, and rich universities will start their season by paying a very small school with a less skilled team to travel to their university to play a game. And the expectation is, hey, we're gonna write you a check and then we're gonna demolish your football team. And it's just like a warm up, Like it's just so that when they start playing the better opponents, that they're ready. So it's basically a glorified practice. So Michigan, this is a a true story, Michigan paid Appalachian State, Appalachian, I don't know, I, I never know how to say it, I'm gonna switch it, Appalachian State, They paid them $400,000 to come up to Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's higher now. Now it's in the millions. But at this time, 11 years ago, it was $400,000 to come travel up to Ann Arbor, Michigan and play them in football so that Michigan could have the classic warm-up game. They get the win they're looking for, whatever. Michigan had had a really good year before that. Uh, They actually fell one game short of the national championship. They lost to Ohio State. And so some of their juniors in college were good enough to go to the NFL, but they chose not to go to the draft because they said, we have unfinished business. We're gonna come back to Michigan and we're gonna win a national championship. And it's gonna start by playing this cupcake in Appalachian State. And, uh, and there's this guy named Josh Hart. He's the running back. He was the number one candidate to win the Heisman Trophy. And the Heisman Trophy goes to the player who's the best player at any position in the country. So anyway, Michigan's just overwhelming favorite. La- Las Vegas sporting books wouldn't even place a line. They wouldn't even put a line on the game. It was gonna be such a lopsided blowout. Vegas didn't know how to let people bet on the game in the first place. There was no lines. You couldn't, you couldn't bet on it. it was that big. Appalachian State was coming from a place called Boone, North Carolina. It's, don't know, It's town. <laughs> Its town, at, the, at that point in time, uh, 11 years ago, held 14,000 people. The town. Appalachian State was about to play in a stadium that held 110,000 people, all right? It's the biggest stadium to this day in the world, biggest football stadium. I don't think it's the biggest stadium, biggest football, all right? All my soccer fans, I think y'all have bigger stadiums than that. They play the game. And Appalachian State players would recall that they walked in there, and within two minutes, Michigan put up a touchdown, 7-0, just that fast. And they, they talked about how, like, how much bigger and stronger these Michigan athletes were. <laughs> like, like pretty big, pretty strong, pretty fast, pretty much everything better. But if you know this story at all, you know that Appalachian State actually answered. They, they answered that touchdown with a touchdown of their own. They actually go up 28 to 14. But then Michigan does the Michigan thing and they come all the way back, they get the lead, it's the fourth quarter, they're gonna win, right? But then Appalachian State does something shocking. They score again and they get the lead. And then they block a Michigan field goal and they win the game. And it's the biggest upset in college football history. And now so many people know who Appalachian State is because of this game. This game quite legitimately put them on the map. Like their, 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 their applications skyrocketed. Like the cost to go, everything went up. They, they made a lot of money off of this game because everyone went, who is Appalachian State? That's that team that beat Michigan when they weren't not supposed to. It's an amazing thing where Appalachian State had no reason to walk into the big house, which is what they call their stadium because it's so big. They had no reason to believe they had any chance. Like the odds were all the way stacked against them. And yet they went in there and I saw a quote as I was looking up this story and looking for interviews and I saw this quote where they said, there was a moment where we realized they only have 11 players. Like they can only put 11 players on the field when we put 11 on the field. They can't play with 17 while we play with 10. It's 11 on 11. And that means we have a shot. Because they believed in it. They walked into the situation where they could have just walked out onto the field and said, you know what? We're gonna head back, keep the money, we're out. You know what I'm saying? But they walked in. Another story that came to my mind this week as I was thinking about teaching was, I don't know if it was because of Veterans Day that this came to my mind, but I was thinking about, about D-Day, the battle at Normandy Beach. And so I started looking up some stories from, from that day, you know, where uh, the Allied forces had come together to try to stop Germany. And they, they had come to this point where they were gonna battle at Normandy Beach. And this guy was talking, he, he, I was just reading this guy's story, recounting what it looked like on that day. He's like, man, we're in the boat and everyone around me is just dropping, like, literally everyone's dying. Like, everyone's getting shot, and, and even the ones that got out of the boat, the water was so deep, and their, their armor was weighing them down. Some of them were just drowning. Like, they couldn't even get to the beach, and they weren't getting shot. They just couldn't make it. They're, it was too heavy. Just reading this story, it was just obviously just like heartbreaking and shocking, and it's it, something that, you know, I wasn't alive for this. So I was just blown away, and he was talking about how the water was red. Like, it was red with blood, and it was that crazy said, my life was saved by my own rifle. And it wasn't because he shot it. It was because a bullet got like lodged in his rifle as he was holding it like this. And it was supposed to hit his heart, but it hit his gun instead. And just thinking about the, like there's is, there is few acts, maybe no act as brave as that day walking up and pretty much guaranteeing I'm, most, I'm going to die right now. But because they believed that an evil regime should not take over the world, but that we should fight for freedom, that we should join together, because they believed in that. They moved out of courage and bravery. And, and because of that, like they stopped. That was a pivotal moment in World War II. It, it, it swung the pendulum. Even though the odds were stacked against them, they still went out of belief. And today we're just writing a story where Jesus is gonna give a story. He's gonna tell us. He's gonna say, hey, he's looking at the city of Jerusalem and with tears in his eyes, he's gonna say, hey, a day is coming where this city is gonna be destroyed. And he's, he's prophesying. The Romans are gonna come in there and they're, gonna, they're just gonna take down Jerusalem. They're gonna kill people. They're gonna tear things down. And he doesn't say this, but what is gonna happen three chapters later, the city of Jerusalem is gonna kill Jesus himself. But we're gonna see Jesus, look at the odds stacked against him. Look at the destruction. Look at the pain that he knows is coming. And what I didn't read was that for the next three chapters, he's gonna walk into that city anyway. He's gonna preach the word. And he's gonna die on a cross and he's gonna resurrect it from the grave for our salvation. And I wanna talk about, you know, we've been in this series for the city. We've been talking about, man, what could it look like for us to be a church that displays the goodness of God in such a way that if we ever had to close our doors, the city would know they had just lost some friends. Like, they would feel it. Like, what if we could be a church? And how do we do that? And I wanna look at this story of Jesus, and I wanna give us three things that I, just, I, I noticed in this. I didn't mean to do three things. I feel like I do three things every week. It just happens that way. I guess my brain thinks that way. But there's three things I noticed in this, all right? So if you're taking notes, looking at the story of Jesus... I want us to note that first, Jesus saw Jerusalem. He saw the city. First thing, Jesus had eyes to see the city of Jerusalem. Secondly, Jesus' heart broke for the city. It broke for Jerusalem. And third, Jesus entered the city. He walked into the city. He saw it, it broke his heart, and he walked in. Three things I thought were just so powerful. So starting with, first and foremost, Jesus sees the city. This can be harder than it sounds, right? It sounds kind of obvious, you just see things. But if you ever been on your way to work, the same drive you've taken over and over and over again, and then you see a restaurant and you're like, is that a new restaurant? It's like, no, it's been here longer than you have. It's like, how did I miss that? It's like, right? Yeah, because you were looking at something else. Like you were headed somewhere else and you just kind of missed it, right? It's kind of hard sometimes just to take note of things. And this is that moment where, it reminds me of a time where I had heard about child soldiers in Africa. I'd heard about like wars, like tearing families apart and people abducting children and turning them into soldiers. But when I went to Uganda and I met a father who said to pray for his daughter who was abducted three years ago and recruited to be a child soldier, not recruited, taken, forced to be a child soldier. It's like, oh, like I saw it. Like for the first time, like I'd heard the stories, I knew about it, but now I'm watching them, and he's telling me to pray and I see it, Right? I was in position to see it. there's this moment where I had heard about how, man, people live in impoverished countries. And I was in Mexico and I'd heard about stories about people living in just terrible situations. But me and a group of people actually went and visited what they called the dump, a landfill where they dump trash and families live and survive in the dump. They live there. They just search trash every day and that's how they survive with their children. And I saw it. Like, for the first time, I'd put something in my path to actually see the devastation. Or I think about a time a couple of years ago in Nashville where I went to an impoverished part of the city it's like where I wasn't in 12 South anymore. I wasn't in Green Hills anymore. I put myself in the path of where poverty was. And for the first time, I actually saw it. And that's easier said than done. Like, yeah, you just gotta have eyes to see it. But I think sometimes we have to put ourselves in the path to see it in the first place and then to look at it. But Jesus, he doesn't just look at it, right? Because a lot of us, we can get there. We can see it. But Jesus looks at it long enough for it to break his heart, he looks at it long enough to break his heart. Jesus doesn't look at it and go, man, you missed it. That's too bad. You really had a shot here. It's too bad you missed out. No, he looks at it and it breaks his heart. Have you ever heard the saying, um, don't judge me until you walk a mile in my shoes? It's like That's smart, right? It's telling you, hey, when you look at someone and you hear about their situation, don't assume that you know how you'd respond, right? Like, Don't just assume you know what they should or shouldn't do, right? Take some time. Put yourself in the situation and, and try your best to just feel what they might be feeling. And if you actually have done that exercise, you'll note your thoughts change if you actually do it. Or if you like talk to someone who's actually going through something and ask them questions, you'll realize like, okay, I thought this going into it, but now that I've talked to you, I, I, I kind of have a change of perspective. And I think it's something that Jesus does here. It's like, he looks at the city, he talks about the destruction and then something and he feels it. When it says that Jesus wept, uh, another word for that can be wailed. You ever ugly cried? Like you ever watch a movie and kind of teared up? That's not what Jesus was doing. It wasn't like a sweet, timid cry, like, mmm, this is tough. No, it was it was weeping. It was wailing. It was it was being in the emergency room and hearing that your loved one passed away. It was that kind of crying. It was like excessive, over the top, awkward, like, whoa, Jesus, are you good? You need to step aside? Like, I hey, want you stop talking while we go over here and let, let, let you let this out a little bit. It was that kind of crying. Why? Because he loved his city. He looked at it long enough. He felt the pain. It's like never never judge someone until you walk a mile in their shoes. Jesus made their shoes. He made their feet. He knew. He felt it. He understood the brokenness, the situation they're in. I, I started asking myself, how often in the moments where I actually even have the shot to see pain, to see the city, do I look at it long enough? Do I consider it long enough for it to break my heart? I don't say this in a shaming way, but I just wanna ask us, in the midst of our busyness, we've got a lot going on. When's the last time you prayed for your city and you thought about our city long enough for it to break your heart? When's the last time you thought about someone? And I'm not shaming you, okay? This isn't a guilt trip. I'm just asking. I was asking myself, like, when's the last time you prayed for someone long enough that didn't have it as good as you, that needed God and didn't have him yet, that was in a broken situation, you prayed long enough that it broke your heart? Because if you're a follower of Jesus, the same spirit that is in Jesus is in you. And the Holy Spirit was moving in Jesus in such a way that when he saw Jerusalem and he thought about their destruction, even knowing that in a few chapters they were going to take his life, the spirit in him was so broken for him, he weeps bitterly. And I wanted to ask, I'm asking myself, I I was talking to Dave this morning and I was like, it's kind of a hard sermon because... You know, I I try to ask myself every week when I'm teaching, do you believe it? Do you believe what you're gonna say? Do you love the people you're talking to? And are you obeying the thing you're about to preach? Francis Chan taught me that. I was like, that's good. I want to ask myself those questions. And the third one, are you are you obeying the thing you're about to teach? I'm like, I mean, no, not really. Like, I don't, not in this season of my life. I don't know that I am. And so when I'm asking this question, I'm not going, hey, when's the last time you guys did this? I'm going, when's the last time have we done this? Like. When have I done this? Like, God, I'm so busy in my cute little life. I'm so busy micromanaging my like sweet little like organized little box that my life is that I've forgotten. Like there are people that are hurting and broken. Like in this story of a good God who, who we get to sing about going like, oh, what a savior, isn't he wonderful? Yeah, yeah, he changed my life. Like not everyone knows that. And God, how long have I been in my little box that I haven't stopped and prayed for long enough for you to break my heart? Because his heart's broken, it is. It's broken, he's weeping, he's broken for the city. But it doesn't just stop at seeing it and your heart breaking for it. And the third and final and maybe most difficult step is Jesus entered it. He speaks of destruction, he speaks of pain, he speaks of the brokenness that's coming. He knows that the people that are broken that he's trying to rescue are going to turn on him in the worst way possible. And yet he enters into the city. Why does he do this? He begins teaching and and doing his ministry. And I'm like, why does he do this? Easy answer, right? He loves it. Like he loves people. He loves people when they won't embrace that he loves them. His love knows no bounds. It's like no one would question if a house was on fire and a mom went in to save her child, no one would be like, now, why would the mom do that? Does she not know that could cost her her life? Right, we don't, we don't question that. We're like, no, of course, we get it. It's a mother's love. Like, a dad, a mom, it did the same thing. Like, it's how it works. When you love somebody so much, fear and pain and certainly inconvenience pale in comparison to the love that is driving the heart to rescue a life, right? It's just like, when someone's in danger of dying, it's amazing what doesn't matter anymore, right? Like, like Dave was talking, I heard him talking the other month. The other month it was, it was like two months ago. The other month. Uh, he was talking about like, man, it's amazing what would change about my life if my kid went missing. He was like, it'd be my number one job description. Hey Dave, what are you doing? I'm finding my child, don't talk to me. Like, or help me. <laughs> one of the two, like, but don't speak to me unless we're just trying to find my kid, Right? And it really hit me. I was like, wow, that's so true. Like when something like that happens, it's amazing how quickly your calendar clears up. All of a sudden you're, you're free. You know what? I am free. That coffee, not as important anymore, right? Instagram, I can put that to the side. Like, I, can, I can put things to the side if I can care for this urgent matter. I'm like, we are in that situation, whether we know it or not. We live in a city that doesn't know God. Like there are hundreds of thousands, a plethora within a mile of us. There's many people who don't know that God is for them who are convinced because of their church experience that God is even against them. They don't know God. And it's one thing for us to take the time to see them in the first place. It's another thing for us to look at them long enough for our hearts to break for them, to care for them. It's a third thing and powerful thing for us to actually choose to enter into their story. And I was thinking about our church and going, man, will we be a church that first has the eyes to see in the first place, that slows down enough, that gets out of that self-obsessive cultural current we're swept away in long enough to look outside of ourselves, to see other people. And then when we see them, will we not be that awkward moment in the room where you see someone you didn't really wanna see and you go, okay, let's just pretend like we didn't just make eye contact. We both know we did, but we didn't, all right? And we're gonna keep moving on with our lives, right? And we be people that choose instead to look right at it, to soak it in and the pain that we see, but we have an experience which makes us uncomfortable. We don't leave that. We sit in it, we consider it, we hurt for it. May we not just see it and not just break for it, but may we enter into it, may we do something. Here's what I believe. I believe that you are in Nashville right now or wherever you live for a reason, for real. I really believe that. I believe that whether you're a student, unemployed, got a job, got a family, live by yourself, wherever you're at, I believe your situation is divine, that God has put you where you're at and there is work to be done in a good way. Not like work, you gotta work harder, but you know what I'm saying? Like, he's got things for you. Maybe opportunity is a better word. There's opportunity around you. I believe God has put you where you are for a reason. Do you know that the story, that God is relentless in his grace and his love, that has met you where you're at? Like, Jesus did all this so we can know him, and he has chosen us as conduits of that grace, That, that his grace meets us and then goes through us into our city. That's for us. Like, if you're ever looking around going, man, who is gonna help people know Jesus? It's us, like, man, we got an uphill battle to climb. We're not gonna climb it any faster unless we start climbing it ourselves. Like, we're not getting there any faster without us helping, right? We've been chosen for this. And so for the next like five to seven minutes, I wanna give each of us a chance to pray. I believe prayer works for real. I believe the Holy Spirit will speak. And for the next five to seven minutes, we're gonna put a, a screen up. I forgot to tell you this. There's a little slide. It says map of Nashville. It's not the whole city of Nashville. So I'm sorry if your spot's not represented But I want you to take some time right now and I want you just to do something simple. I want you to ask God, God, where is my heart coming alive for a certain part of Nashville? Like what part of Nashville have you put on my heart? Now, you may be tempted to really overthink this and go, what crazy, extravagant, risky thing do I need to do? Because this is like a call to go into the city. So like, where do I need to risk it all? And then you'll get overwhelmed and then you'll just sit in neutral because it's just kind of crazy, right? Some of you are at Belmont, you're at Vanderbilt, you're in a neighborhood, and God's like right there next door, just go knock. Like, I don't know. But some of you, there's gonna be places in Nashville that you've never been, but you've just always thought about. What's going on over there? Like, what's God have for me there? And what I want you to do is begin praying for five to seven minutes. I'm gonna invite you to do it. We're gonna do it together. We're gonna play music like we always do. It's gonna be kind of somber, but we're gonna pray. And, <laughs> and just ask God, God, what part of Nashville or what part of where I live have you put on my heart? And then I want you to, not just to pray for it, because it's kind of weird, like, what do I pray for after I ask that question? But maybe even try picturing that place, that specific place. If it's a place where you work, picture the building. Like, picture the hallway. Remember the smells. Remember the people. Like, think about it. Visualize it and pray. And as you're praying, prayer is a two-way street. Listen. Just ask God, "God, what do you have for me? Right? And then after that, if you're done praying for a little bit, I'm gonna challenge you to do something. Or maybe invite is a better word. I'm gonna invite you into something. I'm gonna invite you to pull out your phone, to pull out your calendar. In the next three days, because Thanksgiving's coming up, I get it. In the next three days, find a time to visit the place that God has put on your heart. Drive to that place, look at that place, and pray for that place. Drive there. See it. Think about it. Sit with it. And pray over it. I've seen that, that has really mattered to me. Like I was looking up the four different types of learning this week. I thought that was going to be what my sermon was around. It's not, but uh, th- there's like, you know, auditory, uh, visual, reading and writing, and then kinesthetic, I think is the word. And it's, it's where you got to touch and see, you got you to be interactive. And I was like, I want us to engage every type of that learning, right? So here's the visual. It's a map, all right? Audio as you pray, right, all right? But the fourth one, I'm like, no, but we have to go and see and feel and smell and like be in it. So I really wanna encourage you, the place of Nashville it's on your heart, like, man, go there, be there, walk around. You know, I remember the story of uh, Joshua and Caleb. It's a story where God has given them a land. He's promised it to them. It's called the promised land. They didn't get very creative there. God had promised us a land. And they send 12 people to go look at the land. And 10 people come back and say, we can't do it. We can't. They're too big. They're too strong. It'd be like, Michi- it'd be like Appalachian State walking out and being like, no, cancel this. This is not okay, right? And no one would have blamed them. You're right, it would have been terrible. Like, it's like the soldiers floating up on the boats to, to Normandy Beach and being like, this is too dangerous. And no one would blame them, yeah. But Joshua and Caleb come back and go, hey, did, did God promise us this? Yeah, okay, we should go. It, like, That's kind of what God does, right? Like, oh, is this ocean? Like, is this sea in the way? Okay, Moses, do something with your staff and let's let's take care of this and let's just walk right through it. Like, this is what God does. He overcomes odds. And so I wanna ask us, will we be a people that go, no, Nashville's too big. Man, how many people are moving here every day? Golly, I-40 is getting worse and worse and worse. Like, there's so many people. And like, how many don't know God? Okay, yeah, I I think let's just sit in our little huddle. (laughs) Let's just do this, because we know God and that's good. Like, no, like God has promised us something. Jesus says, hey, you go. My spirit will be with you. In fact, I'm gonna get out of here because it's better that I send the helper, that the Holy Spirit of God is with you. He says, go to the nations, make disciples. That's what we've been told. We've been told we will not be left alone. God will come with us. You are here in Nashville with the promise of God. He is with you. He has not left you abandoned. And the Holy Spirit has got you where you are for a reason, I promise you. And the kingdom of God is way more fun when we're participating. That's where we get to see God do things. And so for the next five to seven minutes, pray, pray. God, what part of Nashville? what part have you put on my heart? What's right in front of me or what's something that's never been in front of you but you're calling me to? And then picture it, pray over it and then get your calendars out. Schedule a time if you're willing to go to that place sometime in the next three days and pray for it and just watch what happens and come back and tell me next week because I promise you, God will move. He will do some things. So let's just pray for the next five to seven minutes um, and then uh, I'll come through and then uh, we'll take communion together. I'll lead us through that.